Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. One of the greatest debates among Christians is trying to ask the question, what is the Bible all about? I believe all Christians will agree that the Bible contains special revelation about God and his relationship to man. But according to the Bible, that relationship was severed when man sinned. Man in his natural state stands condemned in God's sight. So the story of the Bible is basically about God's plan to redeem man. It is not just a book that tells us what to do clearly and specifically for every detail of life. The Bible is broken up into two testaments, the old and the new. And the disagreement among Christians and where the confusion lies is in the relationship between the old and the new testaments. The question is, how is man redeemed in the old testament versus how is man redeemed in the new testament? Are there two plans of redemption or is it one plan of redemption threaded throughout both testaments? Uh, To answer this question, we must begin with the basics of how we read the Bible. When you read the Bible, the first distinction you must make is the distinction between the law and the gospel, between commandments and promises. There was the first commandment in the covenant of works when the Lord told Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That was the commandment. When man was deceived by the serpent and disobeyed God's commandment, he had to face the curse of death, both spiritually as well as physically. And from that day forward, all men were born sinful, unable to keep God's commands. But God, in his mercy, did not leave man to just shrivel up and die. He made a promise to deliver man from the curse of death. He made a promise to man by speaking directly to the serpent who deceived man. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So as the story develops in the Bible, the Bible becomes a story about the promise of the offspring. 
the seed of the woman, in battle with the offspring of the serpent. And only this offspring will redeem man from sin, death, and destroy the works of the serpent, Satan. This promise is scattered throughout the Old Testament. One important place that it is repeated is in the story of Abraham, when the Lord told Abraham that he would give him a land, a a new Eden, so to speak. He was to make him the father of many nations and that they will be blessed because of him. This promise was given to Abraham and his offspring after him. Paul would later reveal and interpret that the many nations that are blessed through him are made up of both Jew and Gentile in the church. We are the recipients of the promise of Abraham. But how did we receive this promise of blessing? The blessing of Abraham. Was it through the law? Was it through obedience to the law? After Paul explained in the previous section that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because of sin, he now wants to explain the relationship between the covenant made with Abraham, the promise, and the covenant made with Moses, the law. And he wants to distinguish between the promise and the law in time, in history. Here we'll learn a little bit about the history of redemption. When the promise was made to Abraham and when the law was given to Moses and how they relate to one another, how they affect one another. But first he interprets who the promise of the offspring refers to before he speaks of the relationship between the promise and the law because this is the foundation of it all. Remember, this is what the entire Bible is about. He begins by giving us a human example of a man-made covenant. Once a man-made covenant or contract is ratified or made official, no one annuls it, which means no one can invalidate it or cancel it and no one adds to it. Once you make a contract and you sign that contract, You have to keep the terms of that contract or you will face legal repercussions. So he is saying that the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham cannot be annulled. It cannot be canceled because it depends not on man, but on the faithfulness of God. God will fulfill his promises made to Abraham in his covenant. Well, what was the covenant? What was the promise? You'll find the covenant spelled out in Genesis 15. Today we'll just read verses 3 through 5. It says this, And Abraham said to the Lord, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. The Lord also promised Abraham the land, that is the promised land of Canaan. Then he ratified the covenant by putting Abram to sleep, then walking between pieces of sacrificed animals as to say that the Lord would indeed keep this covenant himself. 
It is a one-sided covenant in that sense. God would fulfill the terms and all that was expected of Abraham was that he would believe. And so it said, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But there is one issue with this text. And it lies in how Paul interprets the covenant promises made to Abraham. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. See, the word offspring can be either singular or plural. It can be used as a collective noun, uh, as referring to many. That's the way it's used in Genesis 15 when he says that Abraham's offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky. But Paul says there is one offspring to whom the promises were made. Here, Paul is referencing the first time the Lord spoke to Abraham or Abram in Genesis 12. The Lord called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And he told him, to your offspring, I will give this land. The offspring here is singular. And it is speaking of Isaac, the promised son of Abraham. But Paul interprets this in view of its fulfillment. And that the promise of Abraham was given to his offspring, singular, who is Christ. Isaac, like all of the offsprings after him, including Israel, was a type of Christ. An Old Testament type is a marker that points forward to the future. And in this case, it is the coming Messiah. See, the gospel is the presentation of the fulfilled promise given to Abraham. Because the promise given to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was in seed form in Isaac, but it is in full bloom in Christ. Christ is the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He is the offspring of David, as it says in 2 Samuel 7, where it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this text would later be quoted by the psalmist in Psalm 89. And in Luke chapter 1 verses 32 through 33 and it is speaking directly there of Jesus Christ. In John 12, verse 34, it says that the Jews understood this offspring to be the Christ. And so he is the offspring of Abraham in Genesis 12, 7. Listen to how Matthew chapter 1 begins. Matthew chapter 1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son or the offspring of Abraham. This is why Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw his offspring. And if you reject the offspring of Abraham, you reject Abraham. And remember the covenant blessing and the covenant curses to those who accept or reject Abraham. 
Because the promise was not only given to Abraham, it was also to his offspring. And now, through Christ, we all become sons of Abraham. We become Abraham's offspring. This is when offspring is a collective now. Speaking of the many, as we are joined to the one offspring. And now, we are heirs according to the promise, not according to the law. So the Judaizers needed to hear this because they were holding on to the Mosaic law as if it promised eternal life. Eternal life is only promised and obtained by God's grace. It is not according to your ethnicity, not your obedience to the law, but it is according to the promise given to Abraham and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we are truly blessed, which means we are redeemed. Because that is what it means to receive the blessing of Abraham. It is to receive the promised Holy Spirit and salvation. This is what he meant in verse 14. So the recipients of the blessing of Abraham are to be considered children, not only of Abraham, but also the children of God. And this right was given to both Jew and Gentile, and it wasn't dependent on obedience to the law, which for the Galatians was circumcision. So there is only one plan of redemption, not two. Unfortunately, the majority of Christians in the U.S. believe there are two different plans of redemption in the Bible. One for Israel and one for the church. And one day these two plans will converge. One plan without Christ and one plan with Christ. No, there's always been only one plan of redemption in one Christ. The one offspring. No one gets a pass. God always saved his people through the promise. The promise given to Abraham Uh, We're not going to discuss the function of the law just yet, but we will cover its relationship to the promise and whether or not the law affects the promise. So secondly, Paul wants to reassure us that the promise of Abraham was not annulled by the giving of the law. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward that is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to Moses, came 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham. So the Mosaic law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So the Mosaic covenant, the law, does not annul or invalidate the Abrahamic covenant, which in time came before it. The law does not annul or make the promise useless. So the way Abraham received the promise was not by obedience to the law. And when the law came, we still don't receive the promise by obedience to the law. The promise still remains. Now, when we make the distinction between the law and the gospel or the law and the promise, we're not saying that the law is our enemy. We're not saying that the law is bad in itself and the promise of the gospel is good. 
That is not the distinction we're making. Because both the law and the promise came from God. Remember what Paul said in Romans 7. That the law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is spiritual. But the law and the promise have different functions. They have different roles in the Christian life. Because he also said, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. The law is not bad. The law is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual as it comes from God. The law reflects the holiness and righteousness of God. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. The problem is our sin. And the law does not help us in our sin. The law exposes our sin. So the law cannot save us from our sin. It was never meant to save us from our sin. The law was given after Israel was delivered from Egypt. So basically what Paul is saying is that when God gave Moses the law, God wasn't giving us a new way of salvation by obedience to the law. No. By giving Moses the law, he wasn't canceling the promise given to Abraham or making it void. The promise still remained. It still remained, get this, for both Jew and Gentile, even back then. And it still remains for you and I today. Because the difference between the promise and the law is that the promise did not depend on obedience to the law. While the law requires obedience. It requires you to do something. Do this and live, as Jesus said throughout his ministry. So he is going back in history to say that the promise didn't depend on obedience to the law back then with Abraham, and it doesn't depend on obedience to the law now with us. The promise is dependent on God. It is dependent on God who made the promise. Uh, when you make a promise to someone and it is time to fulfill that promise, do you turn it around on the person you made the promise to and expect them to fulfill the terms of the promise? No, that sounds ridiculous. You made the promise, not them. That's like me promising to take you out to dinner on Friday night. And I say, get whatever you want on the menu. Don't worry about how much it costs. But then when the bill comes, I turn to you and say, hey, can you pick up the check for me? Thanks. That's not how the promise works. So our salvation is not dependent on the works of the law, but it is dependent on God's promise as it is fulfilled in Christ. And we are called to place our faith in this offspring, in this one promised offspring, in order to be united to him by faith. He is our only refuge from the condemnation that comes through the law. That is the grace of our Heavenly Father. We are the ones who disobeyed him 
Yet, out of his mercy and loving kindness, he chose to provide a way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he explains it this way. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, what inheritance is he talking about? Well, if you go back to Genesis, the Lord promised Abraham that he would bless him and make him a blessing to many nations. He promised that he would give him an offspring, both singular, as in Isaac, and ultimately in Christ, and plural, as in the nation of Israel, and ultimately in the church today, into eternity. And he promised him the land of Canaan, the promised land that would later be known as Israel. Also consider verse 14, when Paul said that we do not receive the promised Holy Spirit through the law, but through faith. The same is true for the inheritance. We do not receive the promised inheritance by the law. We do not receive the promised inheritance by obedience to the law. We receive it by God's promise, just as Abraham received it by God's promise. But what is the inheritance for us today? Is it an earthly promised land in Israel? Well, no. Paul speaks of this inheritance in his letters, uh, specifically to the Ephesians as referring to eternal life in the kingdom of God and Christ Jesus. He says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. The inheritance is eternal life in the kingdom of God. He mentions this inheritance three times in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Listen carefully as we'll read two of the three times he mentions the inheritance. He says, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There you hear Paul saying almost the same thing he said to the Galatians. In the prior section in verse 14, Paul told the Galatians that they received the promised spirit through faith. And it was the promised spirit who is the seal or guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When we hear the gospel preached, it is the Holy Spirit who uses the word to convince us to look to Christ by faith. And when we believe, he seals or guarantees our inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, the possession of eternal life in the kingdom of God is all by God's grace. When Jesus said, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were shocked and they were probably convicted because they knew they loved riches too. And they responded by asking, then who can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. Think of the picture, the camel going through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In other words, it's all by God's grace alone, not by works of the law. It is by his promises that man will enter eternal life. So, if what the Judaizers were teaching is true, that someone receives the inheritance by faith and works of the law, it is no longer considered coming to us by promise. They have canceled it. It is no longer a gospel at all. God promised Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations. This, as we saw last week, was accomplished in Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit to grant God's people power to preach about the kingdom of God to the nations. And it continues to this day right now. And it comes to us, not by the law, but because God promised that he would save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. If the inheritance or the kingdom of God comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. The possession of the kingdom of God can only come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now this is a reminder. This is a reminder for all Christians. For all of us who struggle with the promises of God. For those who doubt their inheritance in the kingdom of God. Because we all confuse the law with the promise. We all confuse the fruits with the tree, our good works with salvation in Christ. And all that we do deserve, such as the curses of the covenant, Christ took on those curses for us by hanging on a tree so that we would bear good fruit. Because the difficult question that the Judaizers and their false teaching was trying to answer was, doesn't the grace of God offered in the gospel lead to careless and sinful living? This is how they responded. They responded by teaching falsehood. They were responding to the same assumption that the world always comes to when we preach the promise of God's free grace in the gospel. We're all naturally inclined to a works-based religion. Most unbelievers you speak to today uh, believe that they will be okay on Judgment Day because they have done something that deserves a reward, uh, that deserves eternal life. So how do we answer this question? Does the promises of God lead to careless and sinful living? No. God demands obedience. Obedience is a necessary fruit of the Christian life. If you have no obedience anywhere in your life, this is a bad sign. But just because it's necessary, that does not mean we're saved by our obedience. Remember what Jesus said. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, this is what Jesus was trying to communicate. And teach his disciples when he told them of judgment day and the separation of the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the wicked. Now, this is found in Matthew chapter 25, if you'd like to read it on your own. 
The sheep inherit the kingdom of God, as Jesus said. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the goats will be cast out into outer darkness because they didn't do any of these things for Jesus' disciples. In other words, they bore no fruit. Now, when we consider this text and we speak of the difference between the sheep and the goats, we often focus on what they had done or haven't done, as the text tells us. But seldom do we recognize the point of view of the sheep and how they approach God as unworthy servants, asking, Lord, when have we done all these things? They recognize that they themselves and their works, whatever good deeds they performed, are not worthy of any reward and should not withstand God's judgment. The sheep recognize their inability to earn salvation by their performance. While the goats, they believed they earned salvation by their performance. That's the difference. And Jesus was not at all granting the sheep eternal life based on their performance. He was just confirming the fruit of their salvation. Their humility and love for the church was a fruit of the work of God in their hearts. And the sheep will enter the kingdom of God based on the promise that God made to Abraham 430 years before the law was given to Moses and the promise that God made even before that in Genesis 3.15 through the offspring through Jesus Christ. The promise remains because God remains. The promises cannot be annulled because it doesn't depend on man, but it depends on God who made the promise. If it depended on man, it would not be a promise. And you better believe it would not be the gospel. And as long as this promise remains, be confident that you are not without hope. Christ sealed the deal for us and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we will one day inherit God's kingdom. So let us look forward to our inheritance. Let us remain steadfast and immovable in every good work as we see the day approaching. Let us hold on to God's promises even in the face of failure and doubt. For God is faithful and he cannot and will not break his promises to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.